Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. If you are a guest or a visitor, we do hope that you feel at home, uh, very welcome among us. We're thrilled that you're here. If we haven't met before, my name is Andy. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, just wave at me if you engaged in some way in our week of prayer and fasting. Just lift a hand up. Amazing. We have just had the most incredible week. Um, it has been, uh, I don't know if we've ever had a sense of momentum around prayer uh, like we're feeling at the minute. And uh, I just want to echo Stu's thanks to Lauren and to Stu, actually, who uh, did all the 321 resources over the past week. They did a phenomenal job. Would you thank them again for us? Thank you, guys. Fasting's an interesting uh, idea in our family. Uh, whenever Dana and I were engaged, uh, we had a bit of a roadblock. I don't know if you ever found that when you were like dating or moving towards marriage. It was a pretty intense time, you know, and we were thinking, geez, what are we going to do? How are we going to get past this? And I said, I know. Let's fast. We'll fast for three days. We'll pray. We'll cry out to the Lord to speak to us about our future and everything will be fine. Two days into our three-day fast, I walked into the office and Dana was sitting with a bag of peanuts at her desk. <laughs> It's like at least one of us is taking this thing seriously, but anyway, 11 years later, we're doing all right. A um, couple of things just before we jump into this morning's teaching. Uh, we do have an Awakening the Prophetic Conference coming up in March. Some of you will have heard us uh, chatting about this over the last little while. We had some people show up on Thursday night for that. Um, it's kind of common in this community. You know, you guys don't really pay attention to the stuff that we say and then get mad at us for not giving you the details. So if it's helpful put the dates in your diary. It's going to be an amazing weekend. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night. If you're at our healing conference in uh, November, it's a very similar format. Let me just say this. If you're totally new to the prophetic, this will be an amazing few days for you. But if you're really familiar with the prophetic, if this is uh, something you've been around, you feel comfortable hearing from God and sharing that, can I really encourage you to come? You'll be really helpful for the rest of us that are just discovering uh, this thing. So uh, please uh, get tickets gets soon. Laura is still on leave, right? So she's very used to you guys being last minute and having to scramble a few days before a big event. We, on the other hand, are not. So, um, and she won't be here for this. So we're slightly nervous about that whole kind of thing. So it'd be really helpful if you could sign up as soon as possible to give us as much of an idea of what's going to happen. Um, wonderful. Well, let me pray and then we're going to jump into uh, Matthew chapter five this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us. Come and change us, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So page 673 on your Black Bibles. You might want to go there. Um, We're picking up the Sermon on the Mount where Stu left off last week. Matthew 5, we really see the gears change a bit in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. It's page 673, why don't you turn there. So we spent a fair bit of time in January talking about the kingdom of God, the great proclamation at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or repent for the kingdom of God has come near to you. Like we said, Matthew uses heaven for his audience. It's the same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, exactly the same thing. And remember, it's important that we understand what those words mean. It's the absolute central message of Jesus 
and those who followed him was that the kingdom of God is invading the earth. But what is the kingdom of God? Great question, so glad you asked. Our best definition, it's not perfect, but it is helpful. Our best definition of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. The kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. And Jesus in Matthew 4 declares the kingdom of God is coming near to you. And then he demonstrates that which he has just proclaimed. And you see that happening when the sick are healed and the demonized are set free. Why? Because that's what God wants. It's really important we understand this, that the supernatural ministry of Jesus wasn't just so that we would go, wow, he's really God, or wasn't so that crowds would gather around him. He does the supernatural. He heals people. He delivers people. He raises the dead. He teaches people how to live into a whole new understanding of what it means to be human because he is demonstrating what the desires of God look like on earth. And that was never supposed to be simply limited to the life of Jesus. And of course, if you spend any time in the book of Acts, you will see that proclamation and demonstration continue. And it is entirely appropriate for us to occupy that same mission and ministry in our lives today. But here's what we have to be careful, particularly in streams of church like ours. We have to be really, really careful that we don't limit or contain the kingdom of God, simply to demonstrations of power. The kingdom of God is uh, deeper and wider than simply demonstrations of God's power. One of the hallmarks of immaturity in our faith is that we pursue power more than we pursue Jesus himself. We were always supposed to make Jesus and his presence the point, not what we get with that, which is his Power. And in Matthew 5, Jesus goes up a mountain, followed by crowds of people, and he begins to describe to them what life in the kingdom of God looks like. You see, it's one thing to participate with the kingdom of God around us. It's a whole other thing to discover it within us. Jesus himself in Luke 17, when pushed by the Pharisees of, when is this kingdom arriving? Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. It's within you. Sometimes we can get so caught up, and listen, we're for this, learning how to prophesy, learning how to minister healing, learning how to partner with the miraculous and the supernatural. We are so in. But often that's in this space. And actually what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus pushing into people's personal space of what does the kingdom of God look like within us? Not just around us, but actually within us. What if your life could be a place where what God wants happens? I don't just mean the things around you. I mean the things with in you. Just imagine the inner world of your emotions and your thought life. What if that could be a place where what God wants happens? What if those things that people have said to you years ago that you can't seem to get out of your head, what if those circumstances or situations that seem to just instantly paralyze you with anxiety and with fear, what if in that space the kingdom of God could come? What would your life look like if it were a place where what God wants happens. Proverbs 4 says that we are to guard our hearts because everything in our life 
flows from there. I wonder what's going on in your heart and how close is that to what God wants? Sounds exciting and big party this morning. Here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is talking about the inner landscape of our lives in the kingdom. One important detail to notice is the imagery, like everything in Matthew's gospel, is really, really significant. God's chosen leader going up a mountain to articulate a new vision or way of life. The Moses imagery is pretty stark, except you'll remember that when Moses went up the mountain, he went up on his own. And in this moment, Jesus goes up a mountain and crowds follow him because the life of the kingdom is for everyone. It's not supposed to be contained to a few. And Stu talked last week about our commission at the beginning of Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's the mandate, the commission, the purpose of the church to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus answering the question, how does salt behave and what does light look like? Two really important questions for us to wrestle with as the people of God. How does salt behave and what does light actually look like? Is there anything different going on here? Of course, Jesus is already surrounded by his critics and those who suspect him of trying to pervert their vision of God and his way, which is why Jesus makes it clear that he hasn't come to get rid of what Moses said and taught. He has come to help them understand it and more importantly, live into a full expression of what it was always supposed to do. But verse 21, all of the inspiring stuff of the first four chapters gets a little bit more serious. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. What do you do with a verse like that? Like you ever read stuff in the Bible that you think, I'm just gonna move on. (laughs) Next verse, please, Lord. This is... Firmly in that category, murder and anger are the same? No. I mean, maybe yes, but no. Like, we do like theological gymnastics with this where we're like, I'm sure there's some truth in that somewhere, Lord, but it doesn't really work for my life, so I'm just going to move swiftly on. Remember here that Jesus is describing what life in the kingdom of God is like. how salt behaves and what light looks like. And what he's saying is, if the people of God have anger issues, they are as useful to the kingdom as those who are wandering the world murdering people. It's kind of intense, and yet it is so profound because there's supposed to be something different going on here. And when there's nothing different going on here, we lose our saltiness and we become dark like everything else. Jesus is raising the bar for us in terms of our understanding of what life in the kingdom looks like. How does salt behave? What does light look like? He's saying we are to get so serious about anger. Just imagine for a second a society 
free from anger. Like, just begin to think of the, just, you know, on your own, just in your own head, the different issues that we have to deal with and our government has to deal with that have their roots in anger of some sort or another. And imagine what life would be like were that not there. Or if you want to get a bit more brave, just imagine what your life would look like without any anger. Imagine what your marriage would be like. Imagine what your relationship with your kids would be like, your friends, your colleagues. Imagine what a life free of anger would look like. Confession, I'm not free. I was working on this during the week and uh, Dana was in the States and we had two snow days. I hate snow days. I'd finished the talk on Wednesday, mid-morning, Somebody punched somebody in the face. Somebody broke something. I was trying to double job and send Stu appraisal forms and chaos was happening around me and I deleted the appraisal form and accidentally deleted the entire talk. Whole thing. So, phone my friend who's uh, quite tech savvy and he was like, well, try this and try that and try this and try that. And then eventually he said, Andy, I'm really sorry, it's gone. And I hung up the phone, I sit with my head in my hands, and my daughter said, what's wrong, Dad? And I said, I've just deleted all my work. And she said, uh, pity I'm not a tech wizard or I could find it for you. <laughs> Felt like saying, pity you're here or this may not happen. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I just thought that. <laughs> it's okay. Thanks, thanks, I'm feeling the love. My life in that moment was not free from anger. But just imagine, seriously, imagine what our relationships would look like if we didn't have to deal with so much anger. I think it would change everything. The kingdom is the place where what God wants happens. And listen to me, God does not want anger to be a thing when it comes to how we do life together. It's not what God wants. Not because it offends him. Maybe it does, I'm not sure. But because it's toxic for our relationships. This thing called the church, the people of God, is supposed to be the greatest apologetic for the goodness of God the world has ever seen. We are supposed to be the kind of community that people get around and praise God that this is often true of us, not all the time, but often true of us. That people get around this thing and go, I'm not sure what I think about God, but this community is so compelling. That's how it's supposed to be. It's worth highlighting the context here is relationships, not people that we don't know. Matthew talks about anger towards a brother or a sister. The word raka in verse 22, it's kind of weird. They didn't even try to translate that. You ever notice that in the Bible? Like they translate the whole thing and then just lead random words in there because actually it would take an essay to, you know, translate it and they think it doesn't really matter, move on. That word raka there means like empty-headed. It's a word that um, is full of contempt towards someone that's in your life. And Jesus is saying, salt doesn't behave like that. Light doesn't look like that. 
there has to be something different going on here. Jesus is not talking about injustice or oppression here. When we see that kind of stuff, we should get angry and rightly so. He models that himself when he sees the poor being exploited in the temple. Jesus is talking about us harboring anger towards those we are doing life with and how destructive it is and how it undermines our ability to live life in the kingdom of God. He is speaking about the world of our emotions and our thought lives. How many of you find yourselves having full-blown arguments with other people in your heads? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. How does salt behave? What does light look like? The salt of the earth doesn't behave like everyone else. We don't harbor anger. The light of the world can only shine when we live in a different way to the world around us. So how do we live free from anger in our relationships? How is a really good question. Verse 23, Jesus continues, therefore, this is his antidote. This is his, if you don't want to live in a place of anger, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come offer your gift. Again, the comedy of this verse is lost on us, right? So the people listening to Jesus in this moment where they're eating would like have a like spit their food out moment like, what? You have to understand where this is happening, right? So Jesus is on a mountain near Galilee. The temple is about three days walk away, right? So when these people go to make their offering, right, they have to walk for three days to the temple. They have to go to the guy that they buy the animals from. They buy a pigeon or a small lamb or something. Then they go through all kinds of rituals and all sorts of things to make themselves ready and presentable to make their offering. And then they're getting up the steps and the Holy Spirit does what he does, wander through their mind and convict them of a relationship that's not quite fully what it should be. Three days walk away and Jesus is saying, when you realize that, Set your little pigeon down on the steps, turn around, walk three days back to your village, reconcile with that person that you need to be reconciled with, then turn around, walk three days back towards the temple, go through all the rituals again, pray that someone's been feeding your animal on the temple steps, and then make your offering. It's, it's, it's so much more nuanced than us just thinking, oh yeah, I'm taking communion this morning and I fell out with somebody over there and I should maybe go and say sorry before I do. I mean, that's important, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. This is a mad point that they would have all heard that reconciliation relationally is more important than worship or comes before worship. Who in your life, do you need to be reconciled with? You may go. That's what he's talking about. It's meaningless thinking that you, the people of God, can be sitting in here worshiping Jesus all the while there are fractured relationships in our lives that need to be reconciled. We've decided we're gonna do this new thing with our welcome team on the front door. He's just gonna ask you a question on the way in over the next few weeks, everything okay? What they mean when they're saying everything okay is 
Do you have anyone you need to reconcile with? And if so, you can't come in. <laughs> Just kidding. Of course I'm kidding. But you need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Reconciliation is the antidote to anger. Why? Because when you go to reconcile with somebody, you have to climb off your high horse. Reconciliation requires humility. And you ever notice how hard it is to make a humble man angry? Humility and anger don't easily live together. And if we can learn how to develop the muscle of reconciliation and keep short accounts, anger finds it way harder to take root in our lives and to pollute and infect our relationships. Towards whom in your life are you holding on to anger and hurt? And what would it require of you to go and reconcile with them? One wee thing for this community on reconciliation. So a couple weeks ago, my parents were looking after the kids. We were leaving. And as we were leaving, some of my kids said some fairly inappropriate things to my dad. It wasn't crazy. It just wasn't overly nice, right? So we drive home. We're chatting about it the whole way home. And we get home. And I said to the two of them, I said, what do you think we should do? And one of them said, oh, we should really phone Papa and say sorry. I said, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Let's phone him and say sorry. So phoned him up. When I'm on the phone, Papa, I am so sorry I said those things. I really love you and no problem, that's fine. Next person, and uh, same thing, Papa, I am so sorry. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said those things. I really, really love you. And he said down the phone, it's not a problem. To which my child responded, I think it is a problem. We talked about it the whole way home. (laughs) We love doing that, right? You ever notice that? Like when someone comes to apologize, this is what we do. Don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Can you not do that? Have you any idea the courage, vulnerability, and humility it takes for someone to come and admit they did something wrong and say sorry? What if you just said thanks and received it rather than what we tend to do is run away from whatever's going on in our own emotions, just get out of this you know, conversation as quickly as we can. Reconciliation is the antidote to anger taking root in our lives. Salt and light reconcile. God wants the community of his kingdom to be healthy and whole. Imagine if it were really, really hard to stay in a conflict in this community. It's entirely appropriate for the church. Unfortunately, it's really rare. We're supposed to be the kind of community that it's really difficult to fall out with each other properly. Now, I don't mean uh, disagreements shouldn't happen. Like, disagreements are healthy and important. But how we go about disagreeing and what we do afterwards is what makes us salt and light. It's what makes us different. And it doesn't matter what standard I have. How this community works will be the standard that you have. And Jesus is calling us to have a higher standard when it comes to anger and reconciliation. 
Just in case you were wondering, the intensity continues to increase in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you thought that was crazy, he goes on. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. This is the moment where if Jesus were preaching to a bunch of people from Northern Ireland, be like, okay, easy now. Settle down, Jesus. Like, you know, we got the whole anger murder thing, but this has just gone a bit far. Seriously? Like, it seems a little extreme. Looking doesn't hurt anyone, does it? Just before we go any further into the world of lust and sexual immorality, let me say this. Sexual desire is nothing to be ashamed of. God created it. It's a gift for us and like a fire in its place, it can be an incredible thing. But just like we've witnessed in Australia over the last few weeks and months, allowed to develop a life of its own, it can become one of the most destructive forces on the earth. Jesus is not saying being attracted to someone is wrong. He's dealing with the gaze, the lingering, lustful imagination. One of the things that has disturbed me is probably the best word uh, recently is how easy followers of Jesus find themselves gazing on the same things that a very broken and depraved world find entertaining. Two stories over the last uh, week that have really stood out to me. The first was a news piece on the BBC uh, this week about a lady called Rose Kalemba. Maybe some of you saw this. Rose was raped whenever she was 14 and uh, her abusers filmed it. And uh, then they uploaded it to a porn website. And when she ended up back in school, she realized that most of the school had watched it. And it took her an age to get the website to remove the video. But looking doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? Is there anything different going on here? Is there another standard that we feel like the Lord may be calling us to? <clears throat> the second and only slightly less shocking was the amount of people trying to follow Jesus that watched Don't F with Cats. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it later. We live in a world where stories about horrendous abuse and murder are now entertainment. Listen uh, to what one Guardian journalist wrote about Don't F with Cats, and uh, this particular journalist wouldn't be known as a, a conservative person. He said, it still makes me deeply uneasy that a man who committed an awful crime purely to gain notoriety has now been dragged out of obscurity to be celebrated in a buzzy Netflix show. It still makes me deeply uneasy that a man who committed an awful crime purely to gain notoriety has now been dragged out of obscurity to be celebrated in a buzzy Netflix show. If we are to behave like salt and live like light, how do we respond to these things? Firstly, we need to understand how this stuff works. Netflix is a data-driven platform. It monitors the viewing habits of its 158 Yes, 158 million subscribers so closely that it knows not only what you watch, 
but when you watch it, how much of it you watch and the overriding trends that are most likely to appeal to you. It even collects data on the type of thumbnails, little pictures that are likely to get you to watch the particular show. Everything you watch contributes to more of that thing being made. That's the reality. Everything you watch contributes to more of that thing being made. Is there anything different going on here? Jesus says we are to be ruthless when it comes to what gets our attention because he knows that attention becomes affection. We are to be ruthless with what we allow to get our attention because attention becomes affection. It's why most of us in our lives love this thing way more than any other thing. We love it. We obsess over it. It's the first thing we look at in the morning. It's the last thing we look at at night. Gets all our attention and therefore all our affection. And Jesus says we're to be ruthless with that because salt behaves differently and light looks different. This section goes on to talk about divorce and telling the truth. Jesus is a genius. If you didn't know that, you should recognize that. Forget what you think about whether he's God or not. He's an absolute genius. He bookends divorce with a pile of stuff about lust and telling the truth. Just imagine what would happen to our divorce stats if we could just get a handle on lust and telling the truth. It would change. It would change so much. Deal with lust and truth-telling and divorce perhaps looks after itself. The passage goes on to talk about enemy love and how we respond when we're hated and mistreated. Here's the thing that we need to notice about Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. Jesus is describing his own life. All these little pictures are like cartoons. People using the word fool, being in danger of hell, leaving the pigeon at an altar for a week, gouging out your eye because it was leading to you in an unhelpful place, not making oaths, but simply saying yes or no, turning the other cheek, giving your cloak, walking an extra mile. These are all sketches, caricatures, cartoons of what life in the kingdom looks like. Why? Because they're not supposed to be in an exhaustive list but they're supposed to help fuel our own imagination that wherever you find yourself, you're able to do the work of figuring out in this scenario, in this situation, faced with this thing, how would salt behave and what would life look, light look like? When you're sitting in the staff room and the conversation is heading this way about another member of staff, how would salt behave, what would light look like? When your family is falling apart with the most complicated and conflicting scenario and set of circumstances, how would salt behave and what would light look like? Jesus is provoking their imagination, helping them understand that there is indeed supposed to be something different going on here. And he finishes with that great charge. So what if you love the people that like you? Everybody does that. So what if you welcome the people who are like you? Everyone does that. Is there anything different going on here? What would it mean for us 
to reflect God's generous and abundant love despite the pressure, provocation, despite our own anger or our frustration. And of course, what we see in the rest of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus is his own embodiment of this very teaching. He did all of this himself and in so doing opened a way for all of us to discover a whole new way of being human. When the people mock him, he doesn't respond. When they accuse him and challenge him, he doesn't defend or justify himself. When they hit him, he takes it. And when they they give him the cross, the very instrument of his own execution, he carries it. And when they finally nailed him to it, hanging there, he prays for those who've just done it to him. Is there anything different going on here? Traditionally, the Sermon on the Mount is a burden. It's a reminder of how bad we all are at being Christians. Like, at least that's how I often read it. Like, yeah, not succeeding at that. Yep, definitely not succeeding at that. No, find that really difficult. Thank you, God, for grace. Forgive me and help me move on to a more helpful passage. This sermon is the blueprint for Jesus' very life. And here's what we need to understand, that life in the kingdom is impossible without the life of the king. It's supposed to be impossible. It's supposed to call us to something that we are unable to achieve on our own. It is supposed to throw us upon the mercy and the grace and the empowering presence of Jesus that with him together, we would be able to demonstrate something unimaginable to the community around us. That this city and this region would get around this thing called the church and think, how on earth did they live that way? And the answer is the presence of Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band to come up The life of Jesus was and is the place where what God wants happens. What would your life look like if it were the place where what God wants happens? And I don't mean like all of your problems go away. That's easy. Like, oh yes, if God was with me, then I would have no challenges. You really need God then. What would your life look like right now? Those stresses you're battling with your kids, those family issues that you find really difficult to square or sort out, that work colleague who does your head in. What would your life look like if it became the place where what God wants happens internally, inside, where freedom and life and hope became possible. We're gonna respond this morning in communion. And um, like I said earlier, Jesus sets this whole thing up and finishes Matthew 5 by saying, be perfect. (laughs) 
Thanks, Lord. Be perfect. What if he was serious? It's so challenging, right? And utterly impossible without him. And so we're going to land this this morning by throwing ourselves upon him again, by surrendering again to him and welcoming him in to rule and be boss of our lives. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Life in the kingdom is impossible without the life of the king. And so this morning we're gonna finish by welcoming his life again in our lives. If you are moving towards Jesus, you're so welcome to join us at this table. If you're able, will you stand? There will be uh, communion stations at the front here and at the back. Uh, just a little bit of detail on that. Just rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, okay? Don't, don't fight with the server over the cup. They're not gonna give you the cup. We don't wanna need some reconciliation over that this morning. Um, just take a minute as the band lead us and throw yourself on Jesus again, freshly. Uh, we need his empowering presence to live the kind of lives that he's calling us to live, to learn how to behave like salt and look like light. And then come and share uh, this incredible meal together. Pray for each other. Uh, pray for other people in the room. We'll just do that as kind of family style. And uh, I'll close this in a minute. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to learn how to live impossible lives to demonstrate your goodness and your life to all those around us. But Lord, this morning we confess our inner worlds often don't look like lives filled with faith and hope and love. And so Lord, we pray forgive us for that. Forgive us for that. Help us to build our lives on you. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you again. Fill us. Fall freshly upon us, I pray.